I think we've been void of leadership for a while in a lot of different aspects, but especially when it comes to housing and homelessness, we continue to throw more and more money at the problem. But instead of those funds going to results, we're doing really is expanding the administration that's supposed to be solving the homelessness problem. a regular gym routine. When was the last time you checked on your financial fitness? If you're feeling like you're falling behind, Ed Sedell is here to help with The Retirement Trainer, a podcast about helping you get into better financial shape. Every week, Ed talks about things you need to know to become more financially fit for your future. Learn about things like how much money will you need, financial mistakes other people often make, and how you can avoid them. Plus, details on the Retirement Fitness Plan, a plan Ed personally created to help you get to and through retirement by focusing on five key areas of your financial life. Learn more about the Retirement Fitness Plan when you visit egsifinancial.com and click on Processes. Then subscribe, follow, and listen to The Retirement Trainer on Apple Podcasts, your iHeart app, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. Dr. Carson, thank you so much. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Absolutely. I really wanted to talk to you about housing, the housing crisis that's going on and and homelessness. But honestly, I got a chance to read your book, Gifted Hands, and your background, all the diversity that you went through growing up from, you know, moving from Detroit to moving in with your aunt and uncle in Boston and then back to Detroit. It seems like it's really formed you into the person that you are today. And if you don't mind, just take a minute and tell me what you learned from that and how you really uh, can apply a lot of that to uh, the housing issues that we're facing today. Well, you know, I had an opportunity to see those needy people, people in need of housing and how they live from day to day and had a chance to also interact with a lot of people who did not have homes. In fact, we were homeless for a little while ourselves until the relatives in Boston took us in. And I felt that our government was at a place where they counted it a victory if they could get more people into government programs rather than less people. And I wanted to try to see if we could reverse that trend and increase the number of people who are self-sufficient with housing. Because, you know, I ran into people who had been in public housing for three generations. And for them, it was just a way of life and it was an expectation. And, uh, you know, one lady was angry because it took them so long to find her an apartment with five bedrooms because she had so many children. And they sent her a dining room set. It was a new set that had a scratch on the table. She was angry about that. I mean, the, the sense of entitlement is just overwhelming. And we need to get people back to that can-do attitude rather than a what-can-you-do-for-me attitude. And that's why I found taking the position as Secretary of HUD to be enticing. How did you go from, well, first of all, what made you want to run for president? You've dedicated your whole life to service and becoming a world-renowned neurosurgeon, pediatric neurosurgeon to, I mean, complete, it's a mind shift from that to running for president. So what made you decide to go that route and, and how hard was that? Well, 
when I was asked to give the presidential prayer breakfast keynote speech in 2013, I was pretty shocked because I had given it in 1997. I wasn't aware that anyone had ever done it twice. Some investigation demonstrated that there was one person who had done it twice, and that was Billy Graham. I said, that's pretty good company. So I agreed to do it. And after that speech, everyone was saying, you should run for president. And I said, these people are nuts. I said, uh, if I just ignore them, it will go away. But it didn't go away. Every place I went, there were people with placards, run, Ben, run. The uh, Wall Street Journal had a full-page article, Carson for President. I had over 500,000 petitions in my office. Wow. And I said, I can't just ignore all this. So I prayed and I said, Lord, if you really want me to run for president, you have to give me all the stuff that someone who runs for president has, like a staff and a bunch of money and a Rolodex with all the important names. Next thing I knew, all those things were there. And uh, it was pretty mind-boggling. But uh, it was interesting as I traveled around the country. I was thrilled to see that in the smallest hamlets of North Carolina and Alabama to the largest cities, most people had actually common sense. Mm-hmm. What they lacked was courage. And uh, we have to get people to be willing to stand up for what they believe in and not be afraid of being canceled or called an estimate. Well, very well said. So how did you make that shift? Again, because it's another big shift when you go from being a presidential candidate, secretary of housing and urban development, you know, how did they approach you and what made you take that? Did you have a specific mission in mind when you decided to take that cabinet position? Yeah, the the mission in mind was to change the mindset from dependency to self-sufficiency. And I actually thought there would be a lot of support for that. I quickly discovered that there wasn't much support, that there were many people, particularly on the other side of the aisle, who liked having people dependent. That was their base, their power base, and they were not happy about trying to change that. So that didn't keep us from continuing to work very hard to change the system. But it's going to take many, many years and many administrations to shift the direction that we're going in, but we made a good start in doing that. You know, obviously, faith is a big part of your life. And I say it like that because, you know, when we're talking about, you know, the housing issues that we're facing now, aside from the the pure economic side and what's causing the housing issues, I don't want to call it quite a crisis yet, but it is close. I don't know if you've seen any of the the reports or studies that there are more young 30-year-old adults living at home than ever before. They just can't afford it. And the effects that this is having on the homeless. So what do you think is causing the the housing crisis that we're facing now? And why do you think it's becoming so unaffordable? Well, the cost of housing is astronomical. I mean, the cost of a, of a new home, or the average new home now, exceeds $400,000. How much money do you have to be bringing in to afford a $400,000 mortgage? They say it usually should be two and a half times your income. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. And... Uh, you couple that with the fact that you have far fewer traditional nuclear families, uh, which means you have fewer people with significant double incomes. And then you throw on top of that the regulatory burden, which increases the cost of everything dramatically. And then you throw on top of that the inflation, which is uncalled for, but because of some of the other policies that we've enacted around energy. We see that 
multiplying the effect on everybody's lives. And I think the American people see that. You know, you have 40% of people living from paycheck to paycheck. That shouldn't be going on. You know, we have an abundance of fossil fuels, all kinds of energy. We could be energy independent. We could be fueling the rest of the world and uh, locking down our deficit at the same time. But uh, we choose to do things that just seem to be counter to the health of our country. I agree. I did see a study that said that 49% of Americans, they can't cover the gap between what they're bringing home and what they need just to be able to live. So they're putting you know, that balance on credit cards, which is why credit card debt is it's like $1.3 trillion. And, and it's grown 50% that debt just in the last 12 months. And so I'm looking at it, you know, you've got inflationary pressures, which includes interest rates. And then you also have, what, what do you think about the corporations, you know, buying houses over and over and, and then turning around and renting them out? Do you think that that's creating a, an issue as far as supply and demand and, and raising the, artificially raising the, the value of homes on top of everything else? Well, it, it's certainly helping the corporations. There's no question about that. <laughs> it's not doing much for the uh, for the consumers, for the uh, average people, and it's certainly not doing much in terms of wealth accumulation because housing is the main mechanism for wealth accumulation. The average net worth of a renter is five thousand dollars, and the average net worth of a homeowner is two hundred thousand dollars. That's a forty-fold difference. Makes a big difference, and you know, for young people. Who are trying to come out and start a family, you've got a real problem if you can't buy a home. And there we've seen fewer and fewer young people having babies, our population shrinking in that regard. You know, there's a whole host of things. So it's sort of a domino effect from all of this. And then you've got a supply and demand issue going on here too, because houses aren't coming on the market. You know, people who are able to purchase houses with low interest rates are very reluctant to try to move up as they have traditionally and take on that kind of a mortgage responsibility. You know what? You're right, because even uh, with a lot of our clients that are thought about downsizing, it's going to cost them more to downsize and live in a smaller home than when they're in right now. And, and that used to be part of the cycle and it's not anymore. So that inventory is really dwindling. You've got Young adults, students coming out of college, they've got more debt than they've ever had before, which is, I'll tell you what, I could talk about that forever. And, you know, they're using credit cards to live on. They're not getting the jobs that they thought they were going to get, at least what they paid for as far as their degree is concerned. You said it best. I mean, it's a domino. One is affecting the other is affecting the other. And it really just is becoming a vicious cycle. What's the impact that that's having on homelessness here in, in the country? Because you could look at it two ways, right? I mean, from a, the ability from an economic standpoint and then, you know, from uh, health and, and mental issues, too. But I think combined, they may be affecting each other. What are your thoughts on that? You know, this last year from 22 to 23, homelessness increased by 11 percent. That's the highest percentage since we've been measuring things over the last 16 years. And uh there's no sense that it's abating at all because the prices keep going up. It's very hard to find a one-room, one-bedroom apartment for less than $1,000. And uh, some people just don't have that kind of money, so they end up on the street. 
Then you couple that with the amount of mental illness, which is significant. And, you know, about 60% of the homeless people either have a mental problem or an addiction problem. We have to find better ways to be able to deal with that because housing first, although it sounds good, and it's good to get people off the street. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. But 90% of those people end up back on the street. You have to do housing first, second, and third. Housing second, you diagnose why they're on the street. Housing third, you fix it. If you don't do that, you're just spinning in the ocean. And, and basically, that's what we're doing, making ourselves feel good. So housing first, we get these people off the street. Right. It doesn't do any good in the long run. And somehow we've become so myopic that we, we, we're not able to look down the road and see the implications of the things that we're doing. And what, what that really means is that we need some fresh, dynamic leadership that understands how all the pieces fit together and are actually interested in the welfare of the people and not of a political party. I agree. And you said a very important word, uh, leadership. I think we've been uh, void of leadership for a while in a lot of different aspects, but especially when it comes to housing and homelessness. It seems like we continue to throw more and more money at the problem, but instead of those funds going to results in actually helping the people, all we're doing really is expanding the administration that's supposed to be, you know, solving the homelessness problem. And I'm not just talking about on national level, but on state and, and local levels too. From an infrastructure and leadership standpoint, I mean, what would you say the first step would be to, if you could kind of build a better mousetrap and help solve the problem, what would be the first thing that you would do? Well, one of the things that we did in the last administration was establish the White House Council on Eliminating Barriers to Affordable Housing. And that made a big difference in the various cities that we go into. And it's using federal, state, local agencies, along with nonprofits and faith-based organizations to attack the problem. When we all attack the problem together and work together, it is solvable. But when you have people going in different directions all the time, you're never going to get a solution. And that's where we've been for the last several years. So, you know, it, as far as putting that together from nonprofits to governmental agencies, you have a nonprofit. And let's talk a little bit about your nonprofit. When did you form it and what's your mission? Well, at the end of the, the last administration, I said I can finally retire because uh, I had failed retirement the first time. I said, this time <laughs> I'm going to do it. <laughs> But uh, watching the direction of the country, I soon recognized that playing golf all day and cruising around the world was probably not going to be very much fun watching that country go down the tubes. So myself and a bunch of very capable people from HUD formed the American Cornerstone Institute, which focuses on those cornerstone principles that made America into a great nation. Mm -hmm. Now, some people think uh, maybe it was a coincidence. It was no coincidence that we went from a ragtag bunch of militiamen to the pinnacle of the world in record time. It was things like the cornerstone of our faith, our Judeo-Christian values, which taught us how to relate to each other. Yes. Love your neighbor. Not hate your neighbor. Not cancel your neighbor if they disagree with you. Big difference. Huge difference. Uh, the cornerstone of liberty freedom to lead the life that you wish to lead without a lot of uh, intrusion by the government. Our founders worked very hard to give us that kind of government. 
And uh, Benjamin Franklin, of course, was asked, what do we have here, a monarchy or a republic? He said, a republic, if you can keep it. They gave us the Constitution that kept it for over 240 years. We're as close to losing it now as we ever have been, and we need to be very careful. And then the cornerstone of community. We had people who came to this country from every part of the world. They spoke different languages, but they formed communities. They learned the concept of the common good. What is good for us as a community? If somebody fell out of the apple tree and broke his leg, everybody else harvested the crops, no questions asked. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of unity and community made us incredibly strong. And then life, respect for life from the womb to the tomb. And as we've grown more coarse in our relationship to life, we've grown more coarse in our relationship to each other. And then we also have the Little Patriots Program, which teaches our children the foundational principles of of our nation and our real history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But of course, there's a lot more good than there is bad and ugly. And we have the Executive Branch for America Program, which teaches people how the government actually works. You know, you've seen these men on the street interviews. People don't know anything. I know. And uh, those people who are very easy to manipulate. And there's a whole bunch of other things that the American Cornerstone does. I encourage people to go to AmericanCornerstone.org. And uh, there's just a plethora of things. And the key thing is that they're all free of charge. And you look at the programs, you say, well, this costs a lot of money to create. And the answer to that is, yes, it did. But we go out and we get patriotic Americans to underwrite the cost of it so we can present it to everybody else free of charge. That's awesome. So where do you see your foundation, the nonprofit, in three or four years? And I know that seems like a very short time from now, but everything is moving at light speed from AI, chat, GBT, everything else. This is relatively new for you. You've already grown significantly. So, so where do you see it in, in three or four years? Well, I see it as continuing to grow dramatically, you know, particularly our Little Patriots program. Already the state of Alaska has adopted it into their curriculum, and there are several other states that are looking to do the same thing. And our various programs are continuing to expand as people realize that this is something that's not created to enrich us. Uh, this is something that's created to enhance and enrich America. Through basic education, things that they're, it seems like they're just not getting today. And I did not know that Alaska had already accepted that as part of their curriculum. And there's other states, too. So how many other states are looking at it right now to be added as part of their curriculum? There are about three or four others that are taking a deep dive right now. But I expect it will grow in three or four years probably to pretty close to all the states because when the people see the value of what's being created and Mm -hmm. we've even had uh, people from the other side of the aisle who said American Cornerstone, that's a conservative organization. What they're teaching the kids can't be good. And they've come back and said, you know, we can't find anything wrong with this. Well, Dr. Harst, thank you so much for joining us. I know that you have very limited time, so uh, I really appreciate you sharing this with us today. And, uh, you know, I hope to have you back on the podcast uh, very soon. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for being a patron. Our pleasure. Thank you, sir. Hey, 
tested your fitness level, not your workout routine. I'm talking about your financial endurance, because if saving to a 401k is the extent of your effort, it is time for you to start shaping up. And Ed Sedell is here to help you do that with the Retirement Trainer. It's his podcast to help you examine your financial stamina and learn the questions you should be asking and areas to focus on to help you get to that place you've been working so hard for, a happy, comfortable retirement. And it's not as hard as some might have made you believe. Ed's broken it down into five simple steps. It's the retirement fitness plan, which he personally created to help clarify key areas of your financial life. Learn more about the retirement fitness plan at egsifinancial.com. Then subscribe, follow, and listen to the retirement trainer on Apple Podcasts, your iHeart app, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. Investment advisory services offered through EGSI Investment Management, DBA EGSI Financial Group, a registered investment advisor. Insurance and annuities offered through EGSI Financial Services, Inc., Ohio license number 1020619. 